Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson. And I'm William Papaida. Today we're going to talk about all of the art fairs that happened in New York over the last month or so. In fact, there were eight fairs at least that happened over the last month. William, what do you think about that? Well, it's the kind of points to the fact that the art market is back. And if anyone hoped that the art world was going to change, well, it kind of did. It's more like a kind of mutant COVID variant where it's bigger. <laughs> it's spread out now over really two weeks. And I Freeze had split off a long time ago from the other fairs. But now not only do we have two weeks of art fairs, the Armory seems to have moved permanently to September. So we can expect another New York Art Fair Week this fall. I just want to put it out there. Like, that is too many art fairs. Like, at once to do, and they cost more than ever now. Absolutely. We both looked at getting journalist passes to freeze, and the most shocking thing about that process was finding out that it cost over $200 if you wanted to attend on like the first day, and that they had a tiered pricing scheme where the cheapest ticket was $70 towards the end of the days on the weekend which I think we can talk more about in the podcast, but the prices of the art fairs are really prohibitive for anyone who would kind of want to attend. Yeah, I think that's a real problem. And I think some fairs do a better job than others at making it affordable. Freeze just has something on their website that says like, we want to make this accessible to other people. So contact us, but you have to do it so far in advance. I mean, most people, we live in a time where people are not planning three months in advance just to go to an art fair. I think that's a lot to ask of people. I think it's nice to be able to walk up to a space, buy a ticket and go in. I understand we have COVID protocols, but there was no attempt at spacing really people out. The fairs were packed. I mean, I just think it's another kind of barrier to accessibility and sort of speaks to really who the audience is for these art fairs. And that is people with a lot of money. And, you know, I think it's it's interesting. I mean, it might seem a little bit weird to sort of talk about the art fairs a few weeks after they happen. But I think it's sort of an interesting thing to do because like the art market and arts journalism right now is not really doing a good job of like looking back and assessing what these fairs actually offered and what they represent and what they mean for the kind of cultural landscape of New York City. And they're good at building expectations, kind of creating buzz, and then giving us immediate feedback on like what sold and what stood out at the fairs. And then it's radio silence. Nobody sits back and kind of takes a look at what it means for to have a $70 ticket at Freeze. And so I think the idea of having a little bit of conversation where we can look back at what those fairs offered is important. And I think that's actually the role of criticism, or at least- Yeah, oh, for sure. So I would love to just get your general impression or like what was your kind of overview of the bifurcated art fair weeks? Well, I think there there's so many things. It's hard to know where to start. I think like just on a general level, it's really difficult to get to all of them. There was a sense of excitement that I feel has sort of been in the air for maybe three-ish months or so, at least in, in New York, where people feel like things are kind of coming back to life and people are excited to see one another. That was dampened somewhat by the sheer amount of rain 
that uh, happened at the time of the fairs. In terms of what we saw, I think we've talked about this a little bit off podcast, but really there's, I don't know how else to explain it or describe it other than to say uh, an almost intense conservatism within the art that we're making, we're seeing so much so that if you only go to the fairs, and this was a point that, that you made while we were at the fairs, you would only think that this is the type, that this is what art is. Relatively small things. None of these venues had uh, large pieces. That None of them really work to engage the public. That's not really what an art fair is for anyway. A lot of, there was a lot of mixing of public and private space to such an extent that public space now just operates like private commercial enterprise. And we can talk a little bit more about that in terms of freeze. But all of that is to say that like the art that we're seeing sometimes doesn't give me a lot to think about. Well, I, do, I don't yeah. you. Yeah. I mean, there's, don't feel guilty about that because so much <laughs> of the work that was on display was there for its decorative wall power. Can this object make your living room more interesting looking? And maybe that was sort of the extent of a lot of what we saw. And my broadest impression of it was that I, in I only attended not in freeze the Ferris we went to together. But I was just really overwhelmed by underwhelming painting. I mean, that was what I felt like after I left Freeze and walked out into the rainy afternoon, just a little kind of bummed and depressed by what I saw. And I think what, you know, was kind of problem around that too, is that there was just like little to like no through line to be found in what kinds of paintings were being presented. It's not like it's telling a story. There was just a lot of everything you can imagine from like process-based abstractions to 12th generation Picasso-influenced figurative painting to this kind of like barely there strain of painting that probably has a debt to like our dead market darling Matthew Wong, who owes a debt to Alex Katz. And so, I mean, that conservatism that you identified, it, it really feels like the market for paintings is just kind of voracious and that demand would be met with whatever paintings were available at the prices that like each art fair could move. And so I think the fairs were probably great for people in the market for a new painting for their living room. Otherwise, it was kind of a deadening affair if you're looking for things that are going to provoke thoughts. <laughs> I mean, I would even challenge that assumption, right? Because if you are looking for a mediocre painting for your living room, it's great. Something that's just going to like lighten up the place. Maybe, maybe that the fairs were good for you. But I think beyond that, like we really, I think one of the things that I really struggled with was that there wasn't a lot of great painting. I saw a lot more good painting at the independent than I did at NADA. And we can talk about that a little bit more as we get into the individual fairs. But I think the the big thing that I was missing was material experimentation. Like, where has that gone? Like, mm. why, why doesn't that exist at an art fair anymore? <sighs> I think, well, that points to part of the problem when you have so much mediocre painting. And I would say a lot of it was competent. There was, you know, fine. Oh, painting. sure. But 
it is not doing a lot of material um, exploration. And that points to the idea that what we were seeing was a very sort of conservative moment where I guess the way that I sort of put it is whether for better or worse, when there's so much painting, it's like the medium is the message. And for me, that message is that we are in this kind of like deeply conservative aesthetic moment. And that that experimentation is sort of besides the point. It's really about kind of like minor innovations on established traditions, which is why yes. it's sort of like evoking Picasso so much. I forget the artist's name. There was a sort of profile of her work. It was like four overlapping self-portraits that looked vaguely Picasso-like with the eyes and the features. But like the contemporary twist that these could be TikTok poses or something just sort of overlapping in space. And that level, that's so, it's such a kind of conservative way of thinking about what art is and its execution. And it's just so sort of boring that there's not a lot of room for that kind of material exploration. Um, And so that's, I think, part of the reason why we're not seeing it is because of the sort of market's uh, demand right now for painting. It seems to be, I don't know if it's in relationship to the kind of like NFT sort of frenzy that sort of happened, but in the art world, the traditional art world, paintings are the kind of original NFT. They're like the speculative preferred vehicle for speculation on art making. They're portable, they're medium-sized, they fit on the wall, they don't take up too much space, and they don't necessarily challenge you. Like I think the, the art that you're thinking about and really wanted to kind of see more of at the fairs. Yeah, did you want to dive into Nada a little bit? Because I have some initial thoughts on that, just in terms of, I think, like looking back at what Nada, how I used to see Nada and what Nada is now. Yeah, I think Nada was the first art fair that I went to, and that was the first one that, that we went together. I think it's, it is good to kind of like get into some of the things that we actually saw within the fairs, because it may feel monolithic when you have eight art fairs, but again, these are all things made up of many, many smaller parts and pieces, and some of those things stood out. But again, like broad impression of it was there wasn't that much that was memorable. So the way that I sort of processed the whole thing was thinking about what were the sort of bad things that I saw because and that, that made them at least memorable? And what were some of the good things that, that I saw? And I think the first thing at NADA that jumped out at me was in terms of some of the bad stuff was, and I, I've not heard this artist's name pronounced before, but Carlos Giaconamajoy or Giaconamajoy, I just butchered Carlos's name. But, but it'll be in the show notes so you yeah. can... <laughs> find it there. Have it there. But <laughs> it will know, be spelled correctly. He had a 2020 sort of Abex painting titled Carminos de Luz at Harper's. And it was just a kind of like singularly bad example of the kind of derivative painting that I'm talking about. It could have been executed like in the year he was born in 1964 and not even been particularly innovative then. So it just looked like this kind of like historical artifact put back up. And that the fact that it was made in 2020 is the sort of most, the newest thing about that artwork. I just want to add to this that I have zero recollection of that particular artwork, which I think speaks perhaps to um, the mediocrity of, of a yeah, lot of the stuff that we saw. If that thing turned up at an upstate auction at like the Stairs Gallery and it wasn't signed, they would just say that this is in the school of 20th century artwork or something. <laughs> The the other thing that I thought, and you we both encountered this one, I think the NFT pets in cages was probably, 
the kind of <laughs> dumbest thing that I encounter. I think you actually I found that offensive. Like, <laughs> I mean, to kind of, it might be the worst representation of the plight of animals, like facing actual euthanasia because they can't be yeah. adapted was so bad and linking that to the lifespan of an NFT as like a digital pet was just really gross. And I kind of felt sad for like everyone involved, but I can't say it was the dumbest or worst piece of art fair, the art fair week. Wasn't there also like some tweets in a birdcage or something like that? Yeah. Again, that is just, it's so painfully dumb. I just, it hurt. It was like, yeah, you, you have a better booth that deals with NFT and digital aesthetics that we can talk about a little bit later, but I'm not even going to mention the artist's name because I don't think it helps anyone, but <laughs> the artist Yeppi Hine, I think we could talk about his yeah. freeze. Cause that, that was also like in the running for like worst possible thing you could encounter during the art fair weeks. The other artist that I, that kind of typified a kind of painting that I was seeing at the fair was um, Lori Reed's Ballast at, at All Gallery from San Francisco. It's like this kind of, I define it as the kind of barely there painting movement that's kind of marked by just the thinnest amount of paint that you could put on a canvas, where really all its energy is communicated by, you know, kind of busyness of some small mark making and if I had to imagine the artist talking about that work, it really probably would be like an hour long artist talk just about the size of their brushes and like the speed in which they move them on the canvas. And I feel bad, like I feel a little bit bad about singling out, say, Lori for this kind of painting, but it really was one of the sort of most memorable ones that distilled my feelings about this kind of painting that I'm just seeing so much of at both of the fairs. And that's about it. That's all I remember from Nada being sort of like so bad that I just had to take a photo of it and make a note. In terms of the good things, again, and I would, I would qualify what, me, what is good in this context by saying that there was a lot of very competent, well-executed work at the fairs, just that most of it just didn't leave a trace in my memory after I encountered it. And I know you, you sort of apologized at the fair because you said you didn't have a lot to say and sort of felt bad about that. But yeah, you know, I literally, I literally thought, I, I thought I wasn't smart anymore because like you had all these things to say, and I was like, "There's nothing. I have no thoughts. <laughs> like, what's happened to me?" <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, it, it it took you. You had to go visit some other art fairs where there was actually interesting and engaging work to re realize it wasn't you. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of the art, and I was really just in a afraid of not having anything to talk about, just like, I'll try to manufacture something to say about this work. But I, I really, there wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't much to say. Uh, because, you know, again, we're in such a, like an environment where it's so saturated with artwork, it feels like there should be something to say. But it also, it's just not an environment that also like encourages any kind of slow or thoughtful looking. Yeah, it's not. That, you wouldn't be rewarded. But some of the things that did stand out for me were Margot Ballingen at Pact Gallery had that kind of weird baboon painted on a chair. I mean, one, it was one of the few sculptures that wasn't made out of ceramics <laughs> yeah. at the fair. And it was just a weird moment. And that's one of the things that the show was lacking was that kind of weirdness. And I'm not going to say painting a baboon on a velvet chair is like grand material exploration, but at least there was some sense of novelty or something strange happening. 
I also really responded to Paul Gabrelli's Everyday Objects at New Discretions, which... That was on my list too. Yeah, I mean, it just did a lot of work. I mean, the transforming kind of like empty toy packages or some kind of... Like, I'm not sure what those originally held, but they're just packaging materials that kind of create minimalist sculptures. But they do this kind of interesting twist of kind of reminding me that art's primary function right now, one of them is being a kind of speculative commodity. And so I thought they were really smart, smart pieces. And again, if those had been hung like on a display rack at Forbidden Planet, I wouldn't, I might not even notice them right away, except for they're like, what happened to the toy? That's the palette. All of that sort of evokes that for me. I felt like they, there was like, it kind of reminded me of something like Tony Mattelli or Kirk Hayes might do, you know, Mm -hmm. super like Trump loyal work that is like, there's a little bit of uncanniness to them because they look, they're almost perfect, like not quite. And that's like, that's the beauty of them. Right. They're still like the little price tag, but without so much information. Right. Yeah. And it's true in the kind of like toy collecting world. If you have a package that has a minor error in it, it can make it more valuable or there's so much about the packaging itself that becomes part of like the value proposition. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like packaging is, there is like, there's a zeitgeist around packaging because I have some packaging notes actually in some other things that I saw too. Yeah. And the the other artist that I thought I'd like to at least mention was um, Tessa Lynch at Patricia Fleming Gallery um, was like one of the sort of like artists that I felt like I discovered at the fair that I had never like. Mm, That's always nice. Yeah. And they were just these kind of geometric wood blocks that are used to make prints. And they, they reminded me a little bit of these sort of this great book project that Bjorn Meyer Ebrecht had been doing where he would cut up these kind of modernist architecture books and reconfigure them. And Tessa's work had that kind of vibe, but it was also really interesting to find out that, again, these were sort of used to make print editions. So that was that was a, a kind of nice discovery, at least, in, at NADA for me. And that's what I took away from NADA. Was there any artists that you wanted to add to the list on sort of either side? <laughs> yeah, well, I definitely. So like, I put together a couple of notes on NADA just to prepare for the podcast. And one of the things that I did to prepare was to look back at some of the things that I had written on RF City to see what I had said about NADA, because I really did have this feeling that they were, that they, they had a reputation for strong material experimentation. And what did I say? And the first post that came up was from 2015 and it was titled Not a Disappoints. And that was pretty much, and that was because there wasn't as much material experimentation, but pretty much all the highlights that I had from that time were stronger than anything that I had photographed and taken home to talk about today. So like at that time in 2015, there was the Chloe Weiss bread backpack that got a lot of play. There was puppies, puppies. They presented like this dead guy sculpture that was surrounded by leeches. And I was complaining that year because there was no King Arthur rock opera with like mock saddled war horse or like a stage or the shoot the lobster booths presented inside a car. So I felt like that was kind of good context for like, not just like how I feel now, but like, what was I thinking then? 
And like, what would, what were people doing then? And why was it exciting to me? Because sometimes you look back and you think, oh, that was exciting then, but it wouldn't be excited, exciting now. Any of that stuff would have been more exciting than what we saw. So, and then when I like looked at Nada this time, like the most unusual material was an installation by Elliot Reed that consisted of like three stage lit motorcycles surrounded by a line of knives embedded in a wall. It's like, like basically just like a wall of machismo located at the entrance of the fair and was like kind of reminiscent of the widely panned Dan Colin show at Kagoshin. And, you know, that was like 2010, I think. Yeah, that was the the only show that I can remember where every single critic in New York agreed that it was like the worst show in New York at the time. Yeah, and that included a row of 10 tipped motorcycles amidst giant-sized paintings of pottery. Well, it's a, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I didn't read any press about that particular piece. But again, we discussed this before the pod that nobody made that connection to Dan Colin's piece because there's no one writing about that work. I saw those motorcycles and thought, Dan Colin light and kept moving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's not that... I mean, on the one hand, there's not that much to say. And I think like, I do wonder whether there is some, I don't know whether people are even saying this out loud, like what is the point of reviewing a fair because it goes away and like, there's always something, the point is just to purchase things anyway, but that's the point of a commercial gallery and people reviewed them for years. Now we get like a few things in the times and that's all, but it's good to have some metric of like, (laughs) What the hell is happening in the culture? Yeah, yeah. And at least when you bring that much work together, you can see trends, you can see patterns. And unfortunately, right now, because there's such a, everyone is trying to figure out how can they get into the conversation around painting again, that that's what we got a lot of. And we got very little compelling installation. We got very little material exploration. And we didn't get a lot of political art. I think maybe we should wait until we get to freeze, but were there any other works at NADA that you wanted to? Yeah, I did. I thought Al Freeman's life-size soft sculptures of nude men were pretty fun and fit into what I like to call the flaccid penis trend. Yeah, Yeah. those were memorable. I figured (laughs) that one up. Um, Definitely saw a few photos of, of the flaccid penises of Al's work on Instagram, people posing with them. (laughs) 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 Yeah, they were definitely worth a good laugh. I spoke to somebody at the art fairs. I think maybe you were there. I can't remember now, but this person mentioned that there was a trend on TV to show full frontal nudity. And maybe that that was where some of that was coming from. And so I guess I just sort of thought like whether, like I wondered whether this kind of like signaling of a a kind of vulnerability has a like cultural value right now. That's like kind of the most I can bring out of it. I'm not, it's, it's hard to say. (laughs) Yeah, uh, definitely worth thinking about, but I had not made that connection to full frontal male nudity on TV. Although I think I did just see a bouncing penis on a TV show the other day. So that's, there's some truth there, I'm sure. (laughs) So those are basically my thoughts on uh, on Nada. Uh, I feel like we should maybe move towards Freeze then, huh? Yeah, yeah. And Freeze, well, I think the interesting thing is in 
the connecting thread here is when you when you get to freeze, they're again sort of dominated by painting at a slightly higher price point, sort of bigger names. But that idea that there was so much of that, Freeze had to do this kind of additional programming, sort of like to put a, a wrapper of socio-political work, ostensibly sort of like the public art programming or something that would address the shed's purported function to be a kind of cultural hub for New York City that should be for the public to some degree. So the main work that I remember that was part of this programming, it wasn't with a booth, it was part of Freeze's programming, was Pedro Reyes's two kind of separate installations dealing with nuclear weapons. And that seemed to be a kind of like apology in the form of art installations. Like, look, we're really sorry that there's just so much sort of bad painting here that doesn't really have a whole lot of content or anything to say. So we, we are gonna add these works to the periphery of the art fair so that maybe it's we have some sort of conscience about how terrible things are in the world right now. I've been thinking about this because like the installation itself, I took a bunch of pictures of some of the text and there was like, was that actually, so there was, the archive included some correspondence from Isamu Noguchi who explained why he walked off with Hiroshima memorial photos and a letter that he penned in 1953. And he sort of recounted that like the names of those who died were to be buried underground. And he proposed this like mass black granite, like sort of glowing sculpture at the base that would plunge underground. But the committee turned it down at the last minute. Nobody knows why, but of course, the usual reasons for giving that's like too abstract, too American, like whatever. But at the end, he wrote of this letter, he said, however near Armageddon, like we only gently bury the dead. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself when I read that, like, how poetic is that? And also, what the fuck was it doing at that fair? <laughs> like, because there's no context in that fair where that can be read or have the intended impact that the author had, the artist had when it was written. And mm -hmm. it felt like such a mismatch for something that is so important to be in this context, like makes no sense, like just makes no sense to me. It actually thinking about it now as I just sort of talk this out, it makes me just deeply upset. Mm. And do you think that's Pedro's responsibility too for choosing to present that as part of his installations? Because, I mean, I, I feel like encountering that work was a bit like giving a dollar to a Salvation Army Santa Claus person on your way into Walmart or something. You know, <laughs> I mean... Literally the only way I could think about it. Here's this important work about an important issue at the backdrop of the Ukrainian, uh, the Russia and Ukraine war with Russia threatening to launch nuclear strikes against the US and NATO countries if there's escalations, right? And so, of course, Pedro's work is sort of a sideways, indirect reference to that kind of specter of nuclear war coming back. But he's the artist who brought this work and agreed to sort of do it. On the one hand, I'm hesitant to lay blame there because, of course, this would seem like an opportunity and all the 
And these subjects are important. So I think on like one level, you might think like, well, however the message gets out there, let's just get it out. But I think that any artist has a responsibility to think about the context and consider that very carefully in which art is going to be shown. And I think that at this point, based on what we've seen at Freeze, like it is no longer an appropriate context for work that does thoughtful historicization of anything. It's just the wrong place for it, straight up. Yeah, the shed is the wrong place. Hudson Yards is the wrong place. I mean, the whole setting, you know, when the shed launched, it sort of billed itself as being a kind of contemporary version of like this idea of the fun house, that it would be a flexible space, really going to do experimental programming and become a kind of cultural center for New York City. And what it's most notably done so far has been the backdrop for a terrible succession episode where like Kendall throws a party where everyone has to walk through his mother's vaginal canal or something to enter the space. And now it's become an art fair hosting freeze, charging obscene amounts of money to get in. And on the way in, you have to pass the sort of shuttered Heatherwick suicide machine sculpture. Yeah. Yeah. The vessel, which I think is like that it's, it's more memorable than the shed itself. And the shed is like, I think it's a flawed piece of architecture, but it's the only thing in that entire space that it has like a whiff of artistic integrity. Like that, every time I look at the suicide machine, it's just it's just a symbol of all that has failed. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is, the whole thing is so badly designed. I mean, part of this, you can lay some blame on the pandemic, but 60% of the space constructed in Hudson Yards was for office space and retail. And right now, most of that office space is dead empty, right? And with no one likely to return in the same kind of numbers that would have been necessary before the pandemic. And what they could do is repurpose it as affordable living space, which is totally unlikely to happen because of the people who've already bought into the community and spent millions of dollars buying their luxury one and two bedroom apartments. But it it points to the fact that the whole thing is just like a failure of design. I mean, that Heather Wick sculpture, you know, should be melted down, you know, and just erased from public memory. But we can't do that with all of those buildings. And it, it should be repurposed in some way, just as the shed should be repurposed. But I fear that if there is a kind of predictive of of what New York City's cultural landscape is going to look like, it's going to look more like the shed in Hudson Yards, designed for tourists and to support the art market and bring us yet many more sort of terrible paintings. So I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic, you know, sort of about what frees at the shed signals. And again, that Pedro Reyes installation was just this kind of like flesh-colored band-aid attached to the outside of the fair to just, you know, give it some sense of purpose other than a purpose for art other than just decorative wall power or something. So I think trying to talk about what was sort of good (laughs) at Freeze, sort of in a moral sense, I think Pedro Reyes installation and a few other things they had ostensibly to engage audiences, they were there for their sort of like what they could add sort of morally to the fair or something. Some of the other things that I thought were fairly good at Freeze 
I guess I, I, I do have to qualify this because again, I don't think there was much that was very good at freeze. I think my feeling about freeze was sort of summed up by Alex de Corte's twin globes of slowly changing color that had a happy and sad face on the floor. And in montage theory, or like a dialectic logic, when you have <laughs> happy and sad, there's a synthesis. And that, when you put those two things together, you get meh, like the invisible non-face, you know, <laughs> sort of exists floating between those two globes. And that sort of sets up my, my general feelings about like encountering anything at Freeze. But I did, I was really happy to see Nayland Blake's small graphite and colored pencil drawings sort of on the back wall of Matthew Mark's gallery. They're just these kind of small, modest, fun, interesting drawings that kind of snuck into the fair. I also, I, I was really kind of pleased to see Alex Katz had this giant 1994 painting, Morning with Rocks. And it is just this big sort of painting of the sea with a few rocks. And I felt like this, this was like patient zero of the barely there painting movement, you know, launched <laughs> Matthew Wong's career. And it was just so kooky. It's like the painting sold, the, the stretchers are a little bit warped in the kind of painting buckles. And so it's not quite perfect, but again, it was just this kind of big empty landscape. And that, that was also really what freeze made me sort of feel as I moved through the space. And it did that thing of like, why is there so much of this kind of painting? And it, in part, it's due to Alex Katz's continued sort of market success uh, as an artist. And so, you know, I think I have to admit, I didn't think anything was really that great at Freeze. But at that level of an art fair, none of the artists need my approval. <laughs> you know, And I don't <laughs> think my criticism is going to do anything to those artists' careers at this point. What, what were some, I guess, what were some of the things that stood out or that you thought were pretty good uh, at Freeze? Well, I did think like one thing that we should probably note is that one of the high points, and usually these are some of the, some of the high points are the conversations you have at the fair. So like we ran into Kevin McCoy and the upstairs airport port type lobby and we were able to talk about his installations on screens. And that was really fun. And notably, I think we spoke for about an hour with George Shear, who runs the Contemporary Art Gallery in New Orleans. And he's, he spent like a ton of time just talking about all of the programming that he has going on there. And that was really fun because you've got a sense of like art that could be monumental in scale, art that like connected with the public in some way, art that operates differently than a, just a painting on the wall. And that was a really, really nice experience. And I think you had some notes about where that conversation took place. Uh, because both of those experiences you mentioned, of course, talking with Kevin was like a high point, right? But that was also like just behind us when we were talking to Kevin was Yeppie Hines installation. And that was one of the Which worst. Which the worst. Yeah. Come back to it. But yeah, when we ran into George, directly behind him was Kasia Van Zeppel's sculptural installation called Celesbian Terrain. And it's these aqua <laughs> resin sort of lesbian figures uh, with VR headsets and sex toys 
coming out of their fingers, all sort of filming themselves ostensibly for like OnlyFans or TikTok. And George is sitting there talking about, like, I remember he's talking about an artist who had drawn a, a chalk line through the entire gallery space, just down near the bottom of the gallery floor, reminiscent of like a Robert Morris intervention or site-specific piece. But to kind of highlight the invisible labor happening in museums and galleries. And I thought that was such a really interesting and engaging conceptual art piece. And just behind me, I'm looking at these like cloudy eyed women. They're sort of terrified that I just was like trying to imagine like, what would it be like for George to have to kind of like pitch this work to his board, to his staff? Like, hey, I want to show lesbian terrain. And no, I think maybe the piece itself maybe is a pretty great work. I mean, I don't know. A lot of people were posting about it on Instagram. Um, Oh no, (laughs) not that conversation. Just because something gets talked about a lot doesn't mean it's good. Uh, It was memorable because, I mean, I felt like it was a little bit of like um, a late to the party example of that kind of post-internet edge lordis art or something that was popular around the time of the 20... 14 Berlin Biennial or something. So when I was at Volta, and there's literally nothing to talk about Volta, I think I have like one (laughs) one note. It was so bad. Like even the dealers were complaining about it. But like there was a sculpture of like a, a shell, like a conch that was black, shiny black plastic or resin. And emerging out of it was like a baby's head. And... You all can't see this, but William is like literally like smacking his hand to his forehead right now. And there is something about, I don't know what that genre of art is because it feels like it's on this, it's maybe a parallel track to the like celestial lesbian piece that we're talking about, but shiny black glittery things that emerge nubile figures is mm. like, and and usually there's something that's like, quote unquote, disturbing about it. And usually there's something that is just like really stupid yeah. about it. Like that's, that's the part that you just like trying to balance like the immediate eye roll that happens when you see that versus like, okay, like how can I, look at this and actually can and consider it with the care that it may or may not deserve. Well, I got stuck looking at it for a long time. As we said, George, <laughs> yeah, really great <laughs> and just thinking about TikTok and OnlyFans and sex positivity and trying to think about how this could be a really interesting take on identity and maybe something subversive in the kind of horror, body horror genre, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get there, but it was absolute Instagram bait. I mean, it's a thing begging to be sort of photographed and talked about. And it is that kind of like spectacular work in the sense of being a spectacle within an art fair. And when you are surrounded by so many things, like at Freeze, some of the other bad things that I felt were notable were like the return of shiny objects. There were I have photos on my phone of unnamed paintings where I'm just photographing my reflection with like texture, maybe the only other thing you could talk about in one of those. Or there was an artist, um, Scott Leal at Miguel Abreu, who actually at least printed some interesting abstraction on the mirror. There was another booth of just big glass with some 
orange brush strokes on it in front of glass baubles. So I, I was kind of surprised to see that, you know, like shiny objects, it sort of made a return to the art fair amid everything else. Yeah, there, there was a lot of that. I wrote this down. I wonder what you think about it. Like I said that freeze is for monumental art, but in small form. So like sometimes the production, like you could, the space itself doesn't allow for huge, huge work, but like sometimes what would happen is that you'd have something that was just sort of monumental in labor, let's say, and was scaled up to an impressively large size for that. So like clearing had an 80 inch painting of like, like sort of line drawn waves by Lope. Raguenas. I have no idea how to say that name. It's like large, not monumental, unless you know that it's like tempera on canvas, right? Right. I mean, I got the same vibe actually at uh, Zwerner with um, Carol Beauvais' installation, which was like the whole booth was painted orange and there were these kind of crumpled, I don't know what they were made out of, if they were made out of bronze or ceramic or metal, but they were just basically rectangles that had been crumpled or malformed and they were installed throughout the space, giving it a kind of monumental feel, but you could easily see how you could take one or two of these home Mm. on your wall and maybe paint it orange too, you know? So it went for that kind of monumentality. And I'm sure those were highly produced wall mounted sculptures. Yeah. In terms of like painting that stuck out to me, I, you know, usually I try to find something that's like, I don't know, like weird, which was pretty hard to find in this fair. I like Greg Parmesan's yellow universal flower. It was a like medium-sized painting that depicts an octopus in space with a god and goddess hanging on to one of its tentacles. And <laughs> yeah, I remember that now. <laughs> I suppose I still think of outer space as a space for optimism, even if like Jeff Bezos dick has entered that space or tried to, and even if it's occupied by an octopus. And I, I did, there does seem to be a zeitgeist around like astrological readings and outer space in general and like gods and goddesses and any kind of alternative uh, spirituality. So it did seem like it was hitting a certain cultural nerve. Yeah, and I would say sci-fi has found its way pretty heavily into the art world. Yes. Sort of genre moves or things like Afrofuturism, where we're thinking about the future and alternatives and possibilities that may be another way of countering what's happening currently, which is like climate crisis and extinction level events. So I definitely felt you know, some of that vibe. I know we, I think we stopped at one booth and maybe it was in freeze in their kind of like emerging quadrant where there was somebody who had painted these kind of like illustrative quasi sci-fi paintings. And we spent some time debating like, what's the merit of this work? Yeah, there was a real question about that. I can't remember the name of the artist or the booth now, but like there was a real question as to whether like there was like real painterly skill there, the degree to which I, I think it was a, there was a kind of anime aesthetic to some of the figures. How much of that borrowing was I now supposed to think was good? <laughs> like, Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. So, you know, I mean, I think anything that disrupted, I would say, the, the other end of the painting spectrum, um, for me, one of the most memorably bad paintings was Aaron Garber, Mach 
Kavoska basically outdid Carlos Giaconomajoy back from Nada, that sort of really bad Apex painting. Aaron's painting was like an attempt to kind of like capture the spirit of Albert Olin and Gerhard Richter and smash them together. And it just, it was just the most generically sort of bad painting. And I just questioned like, why is this here? So anything with an octopus, a rainbow, a god or a goddess, or any other attempt to really push a kind of technical process in painting would have been welcomed. But Aaron's work is so traditional and so conservative that it like perfectly sums up what the main goal of Frieze was, which is to sell a sort of medium-sized painting that hints at the kind of monumental ambitions of abstract expressionism and a time period that is long past and make it palatable. So there were just enough references to like Olin, who's also in Frieze, and you can see the big sort of amazing paintings that he had done. No Gerhard Richter's, I don't think, at Frieze, but there was that kind of spirit trapped in this sort of really just bad painting. So yeah, I completely agree with you that like weirdness, things that kind of try to break from these kind of like stranglehold of like the most art's most traditional medium yes. and most traditional styles and languages is like a welcome break. They just yeah. jump out. Basically. Do you want to talk about that Yeppe, Yeppe Hein piece? And- I do, because I feel like it was so, it was such a troubling experience on so many levels, because what we're talking about too, if, if, you, if you didn't go to Freeze, the top floor was the VIP lounge, which looked like it had been modeled after an airport, like customs duty-free shop area or something. Yeah, and like makeup and... Watches, Cartier. And of course, you know, that's where we ran into Kevin. Kevin McCoy was showing the McCoy's collaborative work, but because he was the sort of author of Quantum and sort of the face of that very $1.4 million Sotheby's sale? Sotheby's sale for for NFTs. Yeah, you know, LG, the company that sort of sponsored the installation, which was not officially part of like freeze programming. It was sort of in the VIP lounge, right? Or he wasn't associated with the gallery. It was sponsored by the monitor company, LG. And they aren't, they're not good with dealing with collaborations. So it wasn't presented as the McCoys, the collaborative duo. It was just sort of presented at Kevin. But we should be clear, it was the McCoys' work. But Kevin's up there with new generative work on these sort of like experimental, transparent displays, these sort of beautiful TVs. And he felt like he was maybe in the right setting. Relative it was like a scrim, the screen sort of functioned like a scrim. But he had sort of like accepted that this is maybe the more truthful space to present art relative to being in the shed and in Hudson Yards. Because when you walk up to the shed, you've got all these tourists who look like they're, they're like selfie drunk, taking photos in front of the Heatherwick sculpture. They're completely disinterested in like the conversation around contemporary art or conservative painting aesthetics that are happening in the lower levels of Freeze. And as we were talking to Kevin, he's kind of made peace with whatever corporate relationship was going on there. He was like, he's like, I hitched my wagon to tech and all of this stuff so long ago. It shouldn't be any surprise that I'm up here with the TV monitor installation. But behind us during that whole conversation, there was this champagne room. I forget the company that was sort of sponsoring this, but that's where the Yuppie Hind piece was. So basically, if you can imagine this little room built in the center of this VIP lounge. On the back of it, there's this black hole 
that the artist essentially asked you to reach your hand into. And if you did that, you would be given a piece of chalk by one of the people pouring champagne on the other side. They would go into this little room or somebody would sit there and give you this piece of chalk. And then you were sort of instructed to maybe write down your hopes and fears for the world on these pastel colored benches that had little circles on them. And I did take a photo of one of them. And inside these circles, somebody had drawn a heart. <laughs> yeah. Question marks. And uh, maybe there was one other little... Yeah, I think I saw a flower somewhere or something yeah, like mostly. that. Like What was happening is people, uh, very wealthy people drinking champagne were sitting down and smearing those little drawings with their asses. And there was zero level of engagement, whatever sort of question yet behind was proposing. And there was some sort of grandiose wall text attached to it, but it was just so ridiculous. I mean, I think of all the things that we saw at all the fairs, that was the worst. I mean, it was offensive. I mean, if you were a socially, an artist engaged with social practice or engaging communities to see something just like kind of so shittily attached to a champagne booth in the VIP section of a fair. It's like a, a grand insult to all of the artists who's ever engaged in social practice. And I'd like to apologize to them on behalf of an artist. <laughs> like, it's just, it sucks so bad. I, I <laughs> make it hard to even think about Kevin's situation, which in itself was a kind of, I, I guess maybe 10 years ago, I might've been like, Kevin, what the hell is this? At this point, I'm like, Kevin, this is actually kind of genius. <laughs> I don't have a problem with this working on LG monitors in the VIP lounge. Like this feels science fiction. I feel like I've stepped into William Gibson trying to write about an art fair in the future, except we're living it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I feel like we should wrap this episode up. There are a couple of other art fairs that I did see that we can talk about in a separate episode. Um, yeah, and I think also the notes that you have and the links to those fairs, we can absolutely add to our podcast description where we will have links and some of the images from the fair as well. Absolutely. So take a look at the show notes for any of the references that you want to see. And we will be... I don't know, in your ears shortly with other stuff. So see you all soon, everyone. All right, see ya.